May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Do please sit down. It was my birthday yesterday. Thank you very much. Um, I know it's very hard to believe, but I was actually 47. I, I know, I know. Don't, don't, honestly. Really, I know. I know, I look at least 68. Um, which, funny enough, was the year I was born. Um, when I was 15, because of my birthday's in August, uh, English high school exams, you, you know, most people take when they're 60, um, but because my birthday was out after the end, after school had uh, finished for the summer holidays, uh, that meant that I was 15 when I took my, uh, what were then O-levels, uh, ordinary levels, uh, the exams uh, after, well, when you're 16. And uh, some friends and I thought it would be a jolly good thing to do, after we'd uh, done our O-levels, uh, to go and walk the Pennine Way. Now, that's a footpath that uh, goes up, there's a, there's a range of what we call mountains, and uh, you'd call traffic calming measures, um, <laughs> which, which run up the uh, sort of spine of the north of England. And uh, you've got Lancashire and Derbyshire to the uh, west, uh, and uh, you've got Yorkshire and Lincolnshire uh, on the eastern side. And so up they go, and we walk up the footpath, starting in Derbyshire up these, uh, for about a fortnight. And um, we got a bit behind schedule. It was a very, very, very hot summer um, in England in 1984. And uh, a very, very hot summer. And we got behind schedule. It was just very hot walking in the day. And we thought, good idea, we'll walk overnight. So we walked overnight. And we stopped um, in, uh, for a rest in, on the village green, this little village high in the, the peak district of, of Derbyshire. And uh, sat down. It must have been about midnight and sat down for a cigarette and a, and a flask of tea. Um, obviously, in England in the 80s, every 15-year-old boy smoked a lot. Right? Uh, you, know, you, know, you need to get used to that, folks, all right? It's, it's like going to France, okay? <laughs> and so we sat down for a fag, and uh, we would call it, I don't think you'd call it a fag. No, anyway, we would. And, and for a, a mug of tea. And I had a little transistor radio with a battery in it. I turned the radio on, and... Um, and through the sort of crackly uh, medium wave um, reception came this voice. And the voice was, um, as it turns out, was of a man called Peter Dawson, who was an Australian bass baritone. And he'd been born in 1884, and, uh, and uh, in 1904 he'd made his first commercial recording and had a 50-something year uh, recording career. His, um, his 1928 recording of a song called The Floral Dance, which you probably don't know, but it comes from Cornwall, um, is uh, sold 14 million copies. And before the Second World War, he outsold Bing Crosby. Now, I love Bing Crosby. Uh, that's amazing. That's another story for another time. But anyway, old Peter Dawson was very Australian. He sang all sorts of songs. And, uh, and I loved this. First time I'd heard music like this, and I loved this old song. He was singing a song called um, Jerusalem, the Holy City. Last night I lay asleeping, there came a dream so fair. I stood in old Jerusalem. Yeah, some of you know it. Oh, fantastic. Some of the eight o'clockers knew it as well, I really think. Um, so when I got home, I, I thought, oh, this is good. And my, uh, I really enjoyed it. So I went out and bought a record of re-recordings of his old, old, old stuff. 
Um, you can tell how long it was ago because I bought a record. I didn't download it off iTunes as I do now. And uh, so I got some, a record of him and uh, used to sing along and copy him with my mother shouting from the kitchen, Shut up that racket! <laughs> Try to work! And that kind of thing. Bless him. And, um, and so soon after this, I, I started sort of trying to find more of these sort of old singers who were long dead. And I discovered, the next one I discovered was your Paul Robeson. And, um, and not only was Paul Robeson a magnificent singer, he also... Um, Played, uh, with, acted with the Royal Shakespeare Company in England, a very fine actor, made several films, and, um, and really um, was a sort of precursor of the civil rights movement in this country in, in what he did. Um, he, when he was, um, he played college football, and um, uh, he, they, the, the guys, the white guys he was playing against, would um, assault him. Um, quietly, and he, he had things like they put his fingernails out and things, and he never responded. Mm -hmm. He just took it because he wasn't going to respond to that kind of violence. Amazing guy. Um, anyway, I loved his his singing work. His marriage was a bit interesting, I have to say. And I do a little thing at home if people ask me to go and speak at a, at a do, you know, go and speak to the Rotary or something. They expect me to go and talk about the life of an English vicar. And then, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, you, you can imagine, you get them on the telly, don't you? English speakers no. like, yeah. <laughs> um, we have to have our teeth done specially. <laughs> and um, so, anyway, so, um, so I, I, do, I tell Robeson's life story and sing some of his songs um, as, a, as, a, as a thing, and that surprises people, but I think. He, he was quite a witness. So, so, anyway, one of his songs. This is a long preamble to get round to, to singing you about half a second of one of his songs, assuming, of course, that I can remember the tune and the words at the same time. Uh, if any of you ever listen to Radio Four, or BBC Radio Four, and I play it on Monday nights, there's a fantastic panel show called um, "I'm Sorry, I Haven't a Clue," and one of the rounds in that show is called is, is singing one song to the tune of another. Um, so you, you might sing, um, you know, um, uh, Barbara Ann by the Beach Boys to the tune of the old rugged cross. Or, you know, <laughs> is, that, <laughs> is, that, is that kind of ridiculousness, you know. It's very funny. If you get a chance to listen to it, it's on, it's on iPlayer online. It's very good. Um, but anyway, uh, so I'm a bit like that, but completely by accident. But this is, this is a song that I rather um, like, or a bit of it anyway. <coughs> Little pal, your daddy goes away. Promise you'll be good from day to day. Do as mother says and please don't sin. Be the man your daddy should have been. <laughs> daddy didn't have an easy start, but this is the prayer that's on my heart. I want you to be little pearl What I couldn't be little pearl I want you to laugh and to sing and play And be good to mammy while dad is away I pray every night little pearl that you'll turn out right, little pearl. So till we meet again, heaven knows where or when. 
think of me now and then, little pearl. You see, although I copied singing from Peter Dawson, I don't sing in an Australian accent. <laughs> As somebody said, in a, I was in a store yesterday and somebody said, uh, are you Australian? And I said, do I look like a criminal? <laughs> Fortunately, they got it and there were no Aussies around. <laughs> Anyway, the point of that song is that I, I think for those of us who are parents or grandparents and for those of us who are godparents or aunties and uncles, whatever, something that we wish for those who come after us who we love is that they will be in some way free from the mistakes that we have made, free from the character <coughs> faults that we all know. If we're wise at all, we all know what our faults are. Um, that they will be free from those. They will have their own but hopefully the worst of us is something that, that hopefully we wish that they move on from. And that lovely weepy old song, there's a lovely, there's a lovely line in it about um, um, if someday you may be on a new Danny and Dee, don't forget about me, little pal. I mean, it's really powerful stuff you know, in its own way. Um, but there's that wish, that, of wishing the best for those that come after you. And I think, hopefully, for the best of us, that's a, a natural human... Uh, wish when I baptize babies, which in England I do a lot because I'm obliged to. If somebody wants to have, if they live in my parish and they want to have their child baptized, I am obliged after due preparation to baptize them. It's, a, it's the law. It's not like you know I can or I can't. It's the law. I have to. It's the same with marriage. Um, I, I, you know, I marry people. I don't have a choice in it. If they qualify legally for marriage, um, I marry them. So, you know, if I had two Muslim people and they were happy to have, go through a Christian marriage service, I would marry them. You know, that's, that's the, what the law is in England. So when people come to us for, in English churches for baptism, often, 90% of the time, they're people who have nothing to do with the church. But they just feel in some way, deep in their hearts, that it's the right thing to do. Or as in the case of my mother, who's an agnostic, her great-aunt forced her. Um, so, um, well, that's a good role for an aunt, I tell you. Look where it ends up. You maybe. Um, but that was so. They come to us, and, and often I say to to those families, actually, just that. You know, you are wishing and praying the best for this baby that you're bringing. You know what's wrong with you. I know what's wrong with me. And we dedicate this new life to God for God's care that this person will grow up to be the person that God wants them to be. And for those unchurched families, that comes quite, you know, that hits home. You can talk about sin and the devil and all that till you're blue in the face, but in our culture, it doesn't mean a great deal. But actually, wanting goodness and wholeness and, and what God has made to be more perfect than we know it is, is something that most people share. And it's here in the Old Testament reading uh, in the Hebrew Scriptures this morning. There's David. He's been king for a long time and now he sleeps with his ancestors. And Solomon, his son, takes over. And I sort of think that knowing the weight of responsibility of kingship, that David had had something like, I want you to be little pal, what I couldn't be little pal, to Solomon. Um, because David knows, David's a murderer. He's an adulterer. 
He's a schemer, a blasphemer. He is not, like most of us, an entirely good person. <laughs> but God uses him uh, powerfully to nurture the children of Israel in that nation some 3,000 odd years ago. And God then hands on the kingship to Solomon. But Solomon is already wise. Because you have to be wise to ask God for wisdom. Yeah? Solomon is no fool. And when God says, what do you need? He doesn't say, oh, I'll have a lottery win, please. Or I've always fancied a V8 Cadillac. Or anything like that. Well, it'd be difficult. You couldn't afford the petrol in England. It'd be all right here. I've noticed that. I drive a Volvo diesel at home. And it's cheaper to run a 300 horsepower V6 uh, um, Dodge Charger here than it is to run a diesel Volvo in England. <laughs> Frightening. Anyway, um, so there's Solomon, and he has the wisdom to ask for wisdom because he's not thinking of himself. He's thinking of the responsibility he has to his people. And that's a, that's a powerful thing too. So if perhaps if there's a lesson for us in that, it's what do we pray for? Sometimes, obviously, we need to pray for ourselves, and it's right and good and spiritually healthy to do so. But most of the time, we need to pray for the other. And those families that come to me for baptism are in their own way doing that. <laughs> and I also say at weddings, if you want a short and unhappy marriage, put yourself first. If you want a long and happy marriage, put the other one first. It's fairly simple and straightforward. I tell um, this little story to illustrate that point. I'll share it with you. Um, there's, a, there's a couple who have been married a long time. Let's call them George and Barbara. Might mean something to you. Um, normally in England I call them George and Mabel, but I thought in the US I'd call them George and Barbara. <laughs> And uh, they go on holiday, uh, on vacation, sorry, um, to the same uh, English seaside resort, Brighton. It's very nice, on the south coast of England, about 30 miles from where I live, um, every, every year. Slap up holiday for a week, and uh, jolly good time. And one time they're there, and they're walking along the promenade behind the beach, and there's this sign on, on the pavement, on the sidewalk. And it says, helicopter rides, 50 pounds. And George nudges Barbara and says, 50 pounds? I've always wanted to go in a helicopter. 50 pounds to go in a And she, no, George, don't be ridiculous. This is an expensive holiday, and that's 50 pounds. He said, but, but, but. She said, no buts, you're not doing it. 50 pounds is 50 pounds. <laughs> Following it, same thing. Walking along the promenade, sign there. Helicopterised, 50 pounds. He said, come on, Barb. He said, 50 pounds, helicopter ride, you didn't let me go last, can we do this? 50 pounds is 50 pounds. George, you're not doing it. Five years on the trot, walking down, 50, no, 50 pounds is 50 pounds. Then this year happens, where the helicopter pilot himself happens to be walking past, hears the conversation, and he says, he said, couldn't help, he said, you know, so I'm an inveterate gambler. I'll tell you what, he said. I'll take you up in the helicopter. If you don't make any noise at all, you can have the ride for free. And if I hear the tiniest squeak out of you, it's 50 pounds. 
And George goes, go on, Barbara, come on. And she says, well, it's all right. You better not say anything. So they load up the helicopter, and off they go, and the pilots fly this, flying all over the place. You can't loop the loop in a helicopter, really, but, you know, near as he can, all over the place, half an hour, like this. Eventually, doesn't hear a thing out of, out of George and Barbara, lands the helicopter, speaks through on the intercom, Crikey, he says, you, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't say anything, you didn't make a noise, not a word. And, and George says, well, I nearly said something when Barbara fell out. <laughs> <laughs> but 50 pounds is 50 pounds. <laughs> And I tell that little story at weddings just to make the point. Think of the other one first, actually. If you, want to, if you want to be valued, put the other person first. And that's true for all of us in whatever, in whatever our relationship is, actually. Um, put the other person first. And that's what Solomon did. He put his people first because he asked God for the wisdom to rule with equity. And we know all the stories about Solomon's uh, great wisdom. Mm-hmm. Would that a number of politicians on both sides of the pond and heads of industry and bankers and all the rest of it had a little bit of the spirit of Solomon in their hearts. And so to the... I'm going to leave out St Paul. It's sometimes a good move to leave out St Paul. Sometimes it's not such a good move, but I'm just going to leave him out this morning. Sorry, Paul. In the Gospel, um, it's another one where Jesus is talking about um, him being the, the bread of life. And what's that got to do with this Solomon and wisdom and putting the needs of others before your own? Well, obviously, Jesus does that. That's what his whole life is about, is putting the needs of the whole of the universe above his own. His sacrificial love is the pattern of the love that Solomon showed for his people and the love that we pray that people show in baptism and in marriage and in all our um, human relationships because Jesus put all of us before himself. And when he talks about being uh, the bread of life, that's what he means. His role is to be our food, spiritually speaking. And there can't be much more way, you know, more profound way of putting others before you than that, to be ultimately at somebody's service. What you need to know, and you probably do, is that when he's in this passage talking about um, the flesh and the blood, he's using the older Hebrew concept of, the, of a person being a psychosomatic unity. We tend to think of human beings as being a body and a soul. And some of our scripture, written after um, the conquests of Alexander across the Middle East and, and as far as India, which brought Greek philosophy um, to, to much of the known world, the, the bits after that tend to develop this dualistic idea of human being is a body and a soul. There is a spiritual reality and a physical reality. The ancient Hebrews didn't have that concept. They, they, they understood everything as being rolled up into one reality. There wasn't a spiritual realm and a physical realm. There was just God's realm. So when Jesus talks about his flesh and his blood, he's putting over this sense of the whole of his self is something that we take into ourselves, him him serving us. We take it into ourselves 
as our spiritual uh, food to sustain us in life. And for those of us of a Catholic disposition, that's what we do at the Mass. You know, it's, it's a physical manifestation of that in the bread um, and the wine. So that's important too. And the last thing I want to say is yesterday uh, is the Feast of the Assumption. Well, not only is it my birthday, <laughs> it's Princess Anne's birthday. She, she sends her regards, by the way. And, um, and, uh, and it's also the Feast of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary, um, which has only been an official Roman Catholic um, festival since the 50s. Um, but the church I, in which I grew up was dedicated to the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Uh, so it's something I grew up with, and it was always known as David's birthday party was the mass for the, <laughs> the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Um, but it reminds us of Mary too, who gives of her whole self. If you look at a, a Greek or a Russian icon of the Virgin and Child, Mary's at the back, and she's always presenting Jesus. Isn't she? You've seen that. If you've seen the, you know, the Greek icons, she's presenting Jesus to the world. And that's her job, her calling. You know, from the time the angel Gabriel says, it's you, uh, that's what she does. She presents Jesus to the world. She's always in the second place. She's the presenter. And we too are called to that. Just as Jesus puts himself second to our needs, and talks about that in the Gospel, just as Solomon put himself at the service of his people by asking God for the wisdom to govern, so Mary, who the church remembered uh, yesterday, so she puts herself second to Jesus by presenting him to the world. And so we, in reverse of what we've just read about in the Gospel, are called to do likewise. We are called to put Jesus first before ourselves. It's one of the very difficult things... Uh, for those of you that lead worship, and I feel this most acutely. For I was a shy and retiring person, actually it's easy to look past the priest to the object of true worship. For those of us who are bouncy priests, um, um, it's much more difficult, because sometimes people's focus is on you, rather than actually what it should be on, which in this case is the beauty of God's creation mm -hmm. and the praise and worship of God through that and through the service, the worship that we share together today. So my job, and it's difficult, and your job is to present Jesus to the world, always to put ourselves second in our relationships and particularly in our relationship with him. And then you will all be his little pals. <laughs>